You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. You to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one located in one of the seats in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you can call your own. Consider that a gift from us. It's one of our greatest joys to be able to give people the Word of God. Uh, so if you can and are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Now, as we read this, I, I, want, I want you to be reminded of a couple things. The Bible doesn't just simply contain the Word of God. It doesn't need anything to become the Word of God. It is the Word of God. When we read these words, this is God's very words from Him to us. And this is the place that we go for the very words of life that we need today. So when I read this, be reminded of that. Book of Jonah Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, the word of the Lord says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. Uh, Welcome to Providence Community Church. My name's Court. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really glad that you're here with us, especially if it's your first time. I just want to say thanks for making us uh, a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. Um, like Ty said, we've been walking through the book of Jonah, so we're, we're kicking off chapter three, kind of turning that corner of the halfway mark uh, in the series. I did want to make mention of uh, if you're kind of jumping in the middle with us or you, know, you, you haven't been here, you can go check out the podcast. That can be kind of helpful to frame where we've been and, and then where we're going in the book, because we, at the, especially in the outset, we spent a lot of time in chapter one trying to uh, really lay the groundwork for where we are, and we've started to speed up a little bit. So just as a, a quick recap, last week we left off with Jonah being vomited up on the beach. So it was a, just a splendid uh, ending for us. He's kind of kicked back onto the beach uh, after his aquatic adventure with God in the belly of the fish and his prayer of repentance where God rescues him from the depths of the ocean, and then he actually repents to the Lord and, and calls upon God for salvation. And he's spit back up on the beach. And so that's where we're picking up the story here in chapter number three. And in many ways, what you find in chapters three and one is they kind of mirror one another. Um, not kind of, they, they directly do with one large exception, which is Jonah's response. The call of God's the same in chapter one and chapter three. Um, he tells Jonah to get up, arise, go to Nineveh and, and call out against it. And then you see there's a direct 180 that Jonah takes. So before we jump into the text, though, what I'd love to do is pray for us. And so if you would bow your heads, I'll pray and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us through his word. Father, we are humbled this morning. We're humbled by the gift of your word that you've sustained and preserved and provided for us. The truth of the scriptures over thousands of years, my God, you, through the sacrifice and care of countless men and women that you've preserved the word for us, that we might not have to run anywhere else but to your scriptures this morning, and that not in the scriptures we would find life, but that they point to you so that in you we would find life. And so, Holy Spirit, we do ask now that you would open the eyes of our hearts, open our ears to hear you, 
Make our hearts soft, Lord, to what you might want to say to us, that you might encourage and comfort and challenge and convict, uh, comfort, care for us. And Lord, you know what each of us need, and so we do ask and we do submit that you might meet those needs by your gracious will. We ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to read the text again, since there's only four verses before we jump in. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, uh, and again, draw a straight line here from chapter 1, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now here's where it changes. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. It's a direct 180. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, and Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey in, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So Jonah's kind of brought back to the beginning here. He gets the calling a second time, and one of the things that we need to make mention of before we move on is that this detour that God sent him on was not in vain. Why do we say that? It's not in vain because there's, there's a direct difference between running from the presence of the Lord and being obedient to God's call and his commands. One way to say that is that it's through the discipline of the Lord that Jonah goes from faithlessness to faithfulness. It's through the discipline of the Lord that Jonah goes from being disobedient to obedient. And so when we consider the discipline of the Lord in our own lives, there's a purpose for which God would bring the discipline, the loving discipline of the Lord into our lives. And that would be that there might be a shift in the way that we're living But the path that Jonah takes here and leads him to the beach is something that we ought to also consider. And it's because it's not over here. The book doesn't stop here. The book doesn't say, and you know, God rescued Jonah and then period, and that's the end of it, right? And that's important. It's important because sometimes we fall into the trap of believing that because we've been, you know, rescued and redeemed by God, despite our disobedience, God's extended grace to us and loved us and taken us and rescued us from our imminent demise. That that's kind of the end of the story because it is a glorious story, right? It's like every Disney movie that you have ever watched would end right here. They'd be like, and God came in and rescued everybody. Dun, 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 dun. It's, it's, it's awesome. The problem is the Bible continues on by saying God's still interested in him obe- obeying his commands. So there's two sides of this coin of grace. And I think that we should make mention of it and maybe consider it before we move on into the text. So there's another story on the beach that I wanted to bring to your attention. We're not going to turn there for the sake of time. But there's a beach story in the New Testament. Jesus has chosen a man named Peter to be his disciple. Um, Peter was a fisherman. And Peter follows Christ uh, very, very closely. He is in love with not only the things that Jesus says, but he loves Jesus himself. We know this because on the night before Jesus is betrayed by Judas, Jesus actually tells his disciples that he's going to go to the cross. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. I'll never let them do that to you. I'll go with you even unto death. And Jesus' response to him is, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter's baffled by this. And we know the story, right? It actually carries out and it bears out exactly as Jesus said it would. Peter is asked if he knows Jesus as Jesus is on trial and Peter denies the Lord, and then he denies the Lord a second time, and then he denies the Lord a third time, and then the rooster crows, and the book of Luke records that Peter looks over and sees the face of Christ, and they meet eyes as the rooster's crowing, fulfilling what Jesus said would happen. Now, the beach story comes after this. It's a wonderful story. If you have time, I would encourage you to read it. It's in John chapter 21. 
after the resurrection of Christ, after Peter had seen the empty tomb and after he had heard all of the reports from the women who actually saw the risen Christ, Peter, being so discouraged, having denied his Lord, is out fishing with his friends, his fellow disciples, because he's basically convinced himself that he's disqualified from this great calling to be a follower of Jesus now, and now he's going to go back to fishing. The story goes that they see Jesus on the shore. Peter, in his heart, knows it's the Lord, but he asks John, who is it? And John says, it's the Lord. Peter, being overwhelmed, jumps into the water and swims to the Lord Jesus. And the scripture says that they have breakfast on the beach. Now, around this charcoal fire, which is the setting through which Peter had betrayed the Lord a few days earlier around a charcoal fire, Jesus begins to have a conversation with Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter responds, of course, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus responds, then feed my sheep. And then a second time through the conversation, he turns to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. And then a third time, and it's the third time that the Bible records that Peter is overwhelmed with sorrow, Jesus asks him, do you love me, Peter? Now, the reason he's overwhelmed is because it's three times that he had denied him, and now it's the third time that Christ is asking him. And Peter responds, Lord, you know everything, and you know that I love you. And Jesus responds, feed my sheep. Of course, we know the rest of the story with Peter, which is that he becomes the spokesman for the church. He's the one who stands up in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost and preaches the sermon that sees thousands of people saved. He's the He's the first among equals and with the disciples. We see this in Acts 15 when the Jerusalem Council happens. You know, Peter's a well-respected disciple, and he's not just well-respected, but he's he's used by God as the spokesman. But what's the point? Well, there's many points. There's much to be said about that story, but the central point is this. We often fall prey to this faulty belief that our disobedience, failures, and sins can disqualify us from that which God's called us to do ultimately and and purposed us to do in our lives. Now, this isn't to say that we can't be precluded from certain types of leadership roles or anything of that sort, but that your calling and station as a son of God is questioned or daughter of God is questioned by your failures and disobedience is a gospel issue. It's just not true. One way to say that would be when you walk in disobedience, as Peter had, it doesn't disqualify you from walking in future obedience. And that's what Jesus is telling Peter, go and feed my sheep, go and do what I told you. But there's another side to that coin. It's another side that's so subtle that you almost miss it if you don't realize it. And that is that when you walk in disobedience in word or in deed, it doesn't dismiss you from walking in future obedience. And that is why Jonah doesn't end in chapter two. Jonah didn't get it back, spit back on the beach and then God gave him a pat on the bottom and said, okay, now you can go to Tarshish. That's not what happened. He didn't say, okay, go back to Joppa and you can go get back on your boat and do your thing. No, he said, go to Nineveh like I told you to do, right? And this is true of all of us and we must make note of this. It's that God shows us grace and extends grace to us through his discipline. Then he calls us back and says, now I need you to go do what I told you to do. This is a typical parenting tactic, isn't it? If you're a parent, you've done this before. Go back and do what I told you to do. And we got to lean into these two reminders for one important reason. It's the loving discipline of the Lord that gives us two things. One is confidence in our position before him as sons and daughters. The other is courage for the purpose which he called us to live. Confidence and courage are two sides of the same gospel coin. And it's because, number one, on one side, the gospel relies on the righteousness of Christ, who is a powerful Savior. And when you put your faith in Jesus, your sin cannot jeopardize that position ever again because Christ has paid that penalty. That's one side of the coin. When you flip it over, the gospel, because it relies on the sacrifice of Jesus in your place for your sinful disobedience, 
we also can't refuse to obey the purpose for which Christ died to save and send us into the world. That's the other side of the coin. So your position is secure, but your purpose is also secure, and that requirement of future obedience is there from the Lord Jesus. And so each of us are invited to the beach to have breakfast with Christ. And he does two things. Number one, he wants you to receive and revel in the grace that's been extended to you. That's a good thing, just like he did with Peter. He wants to show him, Peter, do you love me? You know that I love you, Lord. Well, Jesus is there at the breakfast to show Peter, and you know that I love you. That's why I'm here, right? But there's a second piece, and that is we're also called to respond in faithful obedience to the calling he gave us, and that's why he showed up to Peter. Peter, you're not a fisherman anymore. You're a fisher of men. And I spoke that to you before you denied me, and it's still true afterwards. You're a fisher of men. So now Jonah, on the beach, has grown acquainted, much like Peter, with a God of all things who's authoritative and loves him. And he's now growing more acquainted with that authority because God says to him, okay, now arise and go to Nineveh. You think, you know, picture Jonah, it's like, can I get a shower? You know, like maybe anything. But no, arise and go to Nineveh. You got to go do the thing that I called you to do. Now, what is the thing that he called him to do? I want to spend the majority of our time this morning on this thought, and that is, The words that God speaks here specifically are important, not just for Jonah, but they're important for every follower of Christ who has ever lived. And I think we have to be specific, and we got to zoom in on a handful of words here in verse number two. He tells Jonah this, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Call it against it what? The message that I tell you the message that I tell you. Other translations will say, bring my message. So this is simple. Every Christian has the same calling of Jonah, and it's this, that we're called to simply bring the message that God provides to the people that God directs. We bring the message God provides to the people that God directs. Nothing less, nothing more. That's the calling. I want, you to, I want you to read with me this. This is Matthew Henry's quote in his commentary when he read that line. He says this. Note, the word of God is an unalterable thing, and it will not be made to bend to the humors either of its preachers or its hearers. It shall never comply with their humors and fancies, but they must comply with its truths and laws, close quote. Matthew Henry saw here in this command to Jonah the importance of recognizing that God's word is the unchangeable message. We comply with it, it's not vice versa. We are not curators of the gospel. We are first recipients of the gospel, and then we are conduits through which the gospel is delivered, but we don't get the edit button. My encouragement for the rest of today's sermon is really simple. Delete the Photoshop from your spiritual life on the gospel. That's not our role. We had no role in crafting the message because we had no role in dying for it. And therefore, we have no role and no right to provide any edits to the gospel. And neither did Jonah. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. Galatians 1, 11 through 12, Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is key. 
Paul's not saying he's never heard the gospel from some man. He's not saying he's never heard Peter preach or Apollos or Cephas. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, I received the gospel on the road to Damascus from Christ himself. It isn't man's gospel, and therefore man can't edit it. Man has no right to to try and shape it. Man has no right to pull out his spiritual belt sander and make the, the sharp edges smooth. He says, because we did not receive it from man. The gospel that I have was received from Christ. Now, this is really unique about Christianity because that's the claim of every apostle, that it's God's message. That's Jonah's claim here, whether he knows it or not, as he's coming, bringing God's word, not man's word. Now, you might be asking, why does it matter? And I, I want to say, because false teaching was the issue in the early New Testament, and it's still the issue now, but it just it seems as though it's not. Sometimes we'll read the false teaching of the New Testament and we'll say, oh, well, we don't have that. Yes, we do. False teaching is always Satan's plan A. It was the point of the garden conversation with Eve. He was a false teacher in the Garden of Eden, and that's why we have to be careful. I want to bring to light as quickly as I can three major false gospels, and I could have chosen many, chosen many others, but these that have been prominent since I've been a pastor, and I think it could be helpful for us to see how false gospels infiltrate their way into the church and also into our own lives, and then therefore we don't, we don't recognize them, but we begin marginalizing the very Christ of the cross. The first one's the prosperity gospel. Now, this was very popular when I first became a Christian. Some of you might be really familiar with it. You know, a couple telltale signs is big hair and nice jewelry. You know, you guys, you guys get it, right? Prosperity gospel, all right? You get, you know, sold a handkerchief or some holy water, stuff like that. They usually have big jets with, like, stickers that say Jesus on them, you know, all things like that. Now, here's the thing about all these false gospels is they all have certain elements that the true gospel has, but they're just counterfeits. So the prosperity gospel, they have a purpose for which we were made, and that is that human beings were made to be healthy and wealthy. They also have an enemy that needs to be defeated, and the enemy is poverty and sickness. It's got to be eradicated. They also have atonement. They both have scapegoats and Passover lambs, right? The scapegoats are the ones that you pray the sins over and you get them out. They got to be rejected. The Passover lambs are the, you know, what do you sacrifice? What do you bleed for? What do you have to kill in your life in order to get what God has for you? So the scapegoats or the atonement for the prosperity gospel is suffering people. If you have suffering people in your congregation, it's because they don't have enough faith. You got to get those people out because it's their lack of faith that's hindering the rest of us, right? Or also, another atonement is that you're lacking faith. That's why you're still sick. So you do that by confessing, sacrificial giving. You give more so that you can get more. You guys get this? Tenfold blessing for you on the basis of what you give, right? You give 10, God gives 100. It's a real weird math equation. You know, some get 30, some get 60, some get 100-fold harvests, right? And all of this is taking the scriptures and twisting them. But ultimately, this is the atonement that's made. They also have priests. The priests are two things. They're aspirational and they are mediators. They're the people you go to when you need to talk to God, and they're also the people that you aspire to be like. These are the wealthy, popular people. You can follow like an Instagram. I think it's like sneaker pastors or something, and watch these pastors in the prosperity gospel that have like $1,000 shoes on, and you're supposed to aspire to this. They got nice vehicles. They got nice clothes. They look good. They look wealthy. They look popular. They got pretty hair. Sometimes it's really big hair, like Marge Simpson up there, but still... The object of their faith is a God who, who blesses. And the act of faith is to manifest that faith by, by speaking only positive things, dressing nicely, dress the part, speak your words, create worlds, so say the right things, right? The second gospel that's false is a therapeutic gospel. This became very popular and still is extremely popular amongst many 
seeker churches, the central message of the therapeutic gospel is that you need to be freed from your psychological and emotional prisons and that God can do that. Your purpose in life is to be centered, to be peaceful, to find that inner peace. The enemy to be defeated is anxiety, depression, and despair, right? And I can go on with that one. Now, the atonement, the scapegoat, is the intolerant people, the people who say things to you that might make you feel less about yourself. you got to get those people out of your life, okay? you got to scapegoat them. But the Passover lamb is you going to counseling, confessing your lack of self-acceptance, confessing the things in your life that you want to accept about yourself, and, and then you don't shed blood, you shed tears, right? That's the idea. The priests of this movement are the nice guy pastors, the sages, the Oprahs, right? They're the ones that we want to be like. That's why that in, in the therapeutic gospel, you never have pastors that preach tough stuff because those aren't, those, aren't the, those aren't the priests. Those aren't the aspirational ones. They just haven't accepted their own junk, and that's why they're so mean. The object of, the, of your faith is a God who comforts you, and your act of faith is constant vulnerability in the search for the authentic self. This is why the most important thing to the therapeutic gospel is that you just be authentic. Even if that authentic is crazy, just be authentic and it's accepted. You know, tell me all the things and just accept. The third one is becoming more and more popular. It's definitely the most prominent in the younger generation now, and that's the equity gospel. The equity gospel, you might know by the term like the social justice gospel, but it became, it started to be popular uh, earlier in my ministry. Um, And now I would say that it's pretty dominant, and that is The central message of the equity gospel is that you have to be freed from the bondage of societal injustice. Your human purpose is to create or be a part of creating an equitable society. The enemy that must be defeated is all systems and structures that that produce inequality. The scapegoats are all the oppressors. You cancel them, right? They got to be killed. Cancel all the oppressors. And the Passover lamb is your own struggle sessions, your own ability to confess your own oppressor-ness and to make sure you confess that to the world. The priests are either the activists or the high oppressed, right? So the activists that are fighting or the highest oppressed one on the scale, they are the priests. The object of their faith is a God who judges. They want justice, and so a God of, ju- a God of judgment. And the act of faith is always be self-conscious about your speech and, and always have the public allegiance to the right causes, Now, I mention all of these false gospels because in one way, shape, or form, they identify something wrong about humanity and its specifics that are true. So for the prosperity gospel, sickness, for instance, is a result of sin, right? The the poverty of the world is a result of sin. You might see the therapeutic gospel say mental unhealth, inner instability, inner hostility, inner chaos, and not peace is a result of the fall. And you might say the equity gospel points out something, that when you have a bunch of sinful people that run, sin, run systems, that means those systems will be full of sin, and people will be hurt by the very systems that are created, and injustice will reign. But I want to point out to you the difference in the gospel. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't start with the self and the specific things that are happening to the self. It starts with God. The central message of the gospel is that Christ died and rose to free you from the tyranny of sin and Satan, and that both sin and Satan demand that you worship anything but God, and that that's the fundamental issue. You see, in the gospel, you have your human purpose as glorifying God and enjoying him forever. You have the enemy to be defeated as Satan and sin. Your atonement is not myriad. It's singular. It's Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. In the gospel, you can't make atonement. Only Christ can. And therefore, you can't shed enough tears or shed enough blood to make right what only Christ can make right. 
and he has. In the gospel, the priests are not a myriad of people like me, whether they wear the clothes that I wear or they wear more prestigious clothes. The priest in the gospel is singular. Jesus Christ, the high priest, he's the only one that can mediate and he's the only one through which we can be aspirational to be like. The object of our faith is not a God who comforts, it's not a God who blesses, and it's not, it's not even the other uh, myriad of false gods. It's the God who does all of those, but primarily he's the God who saves. That's the God of the gospel. And the act of faith is repentance of sin and allegiance, allegiance to Christ alone as the Lord. Now, the argument against what I'm saying that others might argue against me is saying something like this, Court, you're just reducing the gospel to salvation. And you're not being holistic in your presentation. They might say something like, after all, didn't Jesus heal the sick? Didn't Jesus comfort the mourning and the despondent? Didn't Jesus care about the poor and the marginalized? Is that not a part of the ministry of Christ and the message of the kingdom? Aren't you just preaching a kind of a truncated gospel of salvation? And here's what I would say. The reductionism is on the side of those who preach a false gospel. Because they start with self, they can only answer the questions that a handful of their problems, that the, of the handful of problems that they're highlighting. When you start with God, then everything starts to leak out into everything else in the universe. Or I'll say it like this. Whereas all of these false gospels have their starting line with the self and then they make their way to God, the gospel starts with God and makes its way to the self. And because the gospel of Jesus centers with the holy God and then it makes its way to the self, it also makes its way to every nook and cranny in all of the universe. You see, the gospel, the false gospels that I just mentioned, they identify a handful of broken symptoms of a fallen world. These things impact the self and then they build their whole message around it and they use God to do it. In so doing, they make the main problem with humanity the various effects, but not the central cause. So it's not that Christ isn't mentioned in these false gospels. He always gets brought up. He's just not central. He just ends up being used as the tool through which the problems are fixed. But here's the problem with that. Is Christ does not permit anyone to sit on his throne. He, he has already stated in the scriptures that he will be preeminent. He will be central. He won't be used as a tool in the system. He is the king of it. Here's what I mean. The prosperity gospel says the main thing wrong with the world is sickness and poverty. The therapeutic gospel says the main issue of the world is a mental health issue. The equity gospel says the main issue with the world is a societal injustice issue. And then they go on to say, if we could just fix those issues, then and only then can we actually usher in the kingdom. And we can do that through God. But see, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that none of these are the main issue. The central issue is a worship issue. That's what the gospel teaches. And in so doing, by addressing the worship issue, you address all of the other issues. But on the flip side is if you don't address the worship issue, you can't have the rest. So the Christian believes that the kingdom of God is only ushered in by Jesus Christ, the king. And any gospel that doesn't first and foremost address the issue of worship is a diluted and false gospel. It only deceives, it only destroys, it only discourages its adherents because it wrongly assumes that life's calamities can be explained without first addressing our alienation from God. And you see, the false teachers, they always tip their hands here because they tip their hands by showing you the self first and not God. The prosperity gospel says we all desire health and wealth, right? And we all nod because we do. 
And, and listen, let's just agree with that. This is a fundamental issue. Should we all not desire those things? Well, of course not. We all desire that. The therapeutic gospel preachers, they say, we all desire peace and comfort, right? And we all nod. And they say, equity gospel preachers say, we all desire justice and equality, right? And we all nod. And if we don't nod at those things, then we all look around like, look at this psycho. Who doesn't want those things? And rightly so. But by starting here, and by not being at all as shrewd as serpents, but just being as innocent as doves, we fall prey to the predator. Because by starting here, the sin of the garden is not rejected, but it's rejoiced in. You see, our parents also wanted the blessings of the garden without the king of the garden. All false gospels at their root are a desire to have the kingdom without the king. Sure, they may mention the king, but ultimately the king, King Jesus, is just a means to get the kingdom. And they are, nothing, they are no different than the older brother who works hard for the father so he can get his inheritance, but he really doesn't love the dad. You see, we don't believe that Jesus is just a ticket to get into the kingdom. And some of our own evangelistic tendencies have led us here, friends, and we have to repent for this. It's where we've talked heavily about eternal life without talking about eternal life is in Christ Jesus. It is the relationship with Christ Jesus that eternal life is. Christians don't believe he's the ticket to get into heaven. Christians believe he's the main event. (laughs) He's the ticket and the show. You see, when you go into the football game, you show them your ticket. And then after that, you may show off your ticket before. And you're like, look at this ticket. Then you'll keep it safe. Once you're in, it will go the way of the hot dog or the leftover hot dog that you've eaten because it doesn't matter anymore. But to the Christian, Christ is the ticket and the show and the event. It's everything that is. Everything we're after in the kingdom is in Christ. He's what we desire. He's what we want. He's what we need. The gospel of Jesus is not just that we get the blessings of the king. It's that we get God. And that all of a sudden, God has made a pallet in our spiritual mouths that we want that. Now, so how does Jonah's message reflect this reality? Well, there's two things I want to say about Jonah's message. One is that we see a reflection of this reality in Jonah's message given by God. And number two, Jonah's message is subsequent to the message that God has given us. And I'll show you how by the end. So let's break down Jonah's message. Well, Jonah goes one day's journey into the city of Nineveh, and he says, he calls out to them, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In other words, Jonah preaches that God's authority is not restricted to just Israel, where he's from, but it extends everywhere to all times and to all peoples, and that God alone is standing at the apex of history, commanding worship from all human beings. He's now calling his authority as an Israelite over and against the Assyrian kingdom, which would have been madness at the time because the Assyrian kingdom, the kingdom of man, was powerful. And he's saying God is going to judge even the Assyrian kingdom, the kingdom of man. Notice what Jonah doesn't do. Jonah doesn't come into the Assyrian kingdom and say, you know, God, my God can help your society be better. He doesn't say God can solve the the Ninevite mental health crisis if you just serve and worship him. He doesn't say God's interested in increasing your wealth and decreasing your sickness. He's not like, I can bring your COVID numbers down in one whop. Jesus is the answer. He doesn't do that. He starts with God and he ends with God. Ultimately, his message is just a message about God. God is in all authority. God is the king. He's laying a claim over his authoritarian, or his authority. He's laying claim on this kingdom with his authority. And his kingdom is not just the kingdom of Israel. It's the kingdom of the earth. Now, you might be saying, well, that's really Old Testament of you, court. And here's what I want to say. 
it mirrors exactly what Paul's message was to the Athenians. In Acts chapter 17, Paul shows up to the Athenians and says, I noticed that you're very religious. You have all these statues to unknown gods. He says, but I've come here to preach to you that there is one God and he's not made by human hands. He's not served by human hands. He's the creator and not the creature. And he calls all men everywhere to repent. He has overlooked the times of ignorance, but now through one man, Christ Jesus, his son, he will judge the living and the dead. And he calls you to himself and he's made a way into eternal life. That was Paul's message in a nutshell. It's, it's interesting because I think in our time and day, because we've, we've basically inherited and absorbed an ideology from our culture that we don't recognize, it's that we think that God somehow is censored and that Paul was censored. Like Paul was like, ooh, don't put that podcast up. It may be offensive. Just never did that. He never told the disciples. He never told them, you know, like I just, I know I, I preached a little off there. I was a little tough. He just said what God told him to say. Peter stood up in the midst of all the disciples. He looks at the Jews and he looks at the Gentiles and he points to the Jews and says, this Jesus whom you've crucified, God has set upon him the right to judge the living and the dead. And he calls you to repent. It says that everybody's cut to their heart and they say, Peter, what should we do? And he doesn't say, join a home group. (laughs) He says, repent, be baptized, save yourself from this crooked generation. That is not a good title for a sermon. (laughs) If you're trying to build the church, right? And that's what he did. Now, what should we then do? We should be careful lest we fall into the deception of believing a false gospel that vaguely bears the name of Christ, but ultimately never preaches Christ. The reason these false gospels are so deceptive is because they speak to our deepest desires and they are tinged with these Christian tinge solutions that make self the focus and not Christ, but because they have Christ on it or around about it, we think, okay, it's Christian. But that's not our calling to preach any message that looks almost like the gospel. Our calling is to bring the message that God has given in all of its fullness. We do not carry a gospel that's been shaped by the ideological waves of contemporary culture. We preach Christ, is what Paul says. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians. This is in, he's having an argument with them about contemporary culture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. When you read that line, you wonder how we ever got convinced that a seeker-sensitive church was the way to go. Paul doesn't say the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, so let's make Jesus look like a wise miracle worker so that they'll come. He says, we preach Christ. We don't preach what people think they need. We preach what they do need. We don't preach what people think they're after. We preach what they're really after. It's Christ. In other words, Paul does not preach the gospel on the basis of what people are seeking. He preaches the gospel on the basis of what they ought to be seeking, that which God told him to preach. If Paul showed up in 21st century today, he would probably stand up here and say something like this. Americans seek prosperity. Americans seek peace of mind. Americans seek social justice. We preach Christ. That's what he would say. He'd say, I know what you all want. I don't care. I know what you need. Christ Now you might be like, Cord, aren't you just being a religious zealot here? I mean, don't you want to be like relevant? I'm tempted to quote John Piper about that, which he says that because Christ is always relevant, he could just keep preaching Christ. But here's what I'll say. 
The reason we're so adamant about preserving and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ is because we know something about life that Christ taught us and cannot be taught apart from an unveiling of the spiritual eyes of the heart, and that is this. Here's the the little secret that no cultural message will tell you. There is no lasting health and prosperity apart from Christ. It's a facade. There is no mental health, no internal peace apart from Christ. There is no perfect social utopia without Christ the King. It doesn't exist. And all of the kingdoms that have tried to promise it have ended up with a more fascistic, totalitarian state than they ever promised they'd give because only Christ the King offers the kingdom. Any message that promises the blessing of the kingdom of God apart from full worship and submission to the true king is a false gospel, and therefore it is a destructive lie, and I don't care how nice the guy is that's preaching it. I don't care how nice his Twitter feed is. I don't care how nice he is to your kids. (laughs) I don't care how nice he is in his sermons. I don't care how careful he is with his crafting of those sermons. The serpent came to Eve in the garden, and he sounded wise. And he was even kind. He even complimented her and said, oh, it's because God doesn't want you to be him. You could even be better than him. And all false gospels, ultimately, they come from their father, the serpent, and they just preach newly packaged false truths to new generations. And here's the goal, and then I'll close. False gospels have one mere Design, and that is to slowly decouple your desire of Christ from your desire for the kingdom. They want to slowly decouple Christ from his kingdom. So you want the things God offers, but you don't want God himself. They want, to, they want to affirm all the things that God says about the kingdom, but they don't want him to be the king and to slowly decouple that. That way, it won't seem like much of a stretch when they toss aside Christ, but they just offer the kingdom because that's what Satan does. Okay. In closing, Nineveh desperately needs the message that Jonah's delivering. Like, they need it, right? Like, the judgment's coming anyway. They need Jonah's message. And the world desperately desperately needs the message that God has called you and I to bring, namely the gospel, which Paul summarized with one line, Christ is the Lord. The Lord of what? Christ is the Lord of all. What do I mean by all? In the Greek, it means all. (laughs) Everything. Your life, your bank account, your kids, your law firm, your business, all politics, all bureaucracies, all fools, all intellectual elites. Christ is the Lord of what? He's the Lord of all. And when he's the Lord of all, it's good for us. And we are called to preach the kingdom of God coming in its fullness with Christ as Lord. And we're called to preach it because it's only through the king that the kingdom can come. You see, the world decays because it's offered various false gospels that promise some truncated version of the kingdom without the king. But I contend that this is futile and the church needs to reject and repent of this. The church needs to return to the simple gospel, no frills, straight Christ, and return to it with open arms so that we might reap the harvest that Jesus said before he was resurrected, that it was full, white, We've went into the harvest with all the wrong tools and wondered why we can't reap the harvest. And we need to come with Christ and him crucified. So that's how Jonah's message is alike. But how is it different? How is the gospel superior? Jonah comes and he can only tell about judgment. All he can give you is a warning. Hey, in 40 days, it's going to go bad. 
the same message Noah had, right? Noah says, hey, it's going to rain in 40 days. They're like, what's rain? He said, it ain't good. That's the Old Testament message in a nutshell, isn't it? Because it's law without grace. It's here's the truth. You're an enemy of God because you're, you're against the truth. We're in trouble. We need to humble ourselves and ask God for mercy. And that's what the Ninevites do. But now in Christ, the book of Hebrews says that we have a better word. It speaks a better word than that of Abel because we not only offer the warning of judgment, we offer salvation in the person of Christ. You see, the old covenant prophets didn't have this. They had it aspirationally, but they didn't have it in actual history. We do. The prophets pointed forward to what was coming, and we now prophetically point backwards at what has already happened. That's why it's good news, not good fortunes. Good news means it's already happened. Jesus already died. He already is the perfect sacrifice. We come with the warning, and then we come with the hope. We come with what Christ has done, who Christ is, how it changes everything, and how submission to him will change all of the things that you're really desiring here. In Christ, we have them. And so Jonah's message is a warning of judgment, but the gospel message is the news of eternal life in him. And so the last thing that I'll say is let's not just guard our heart from the false gospels. We should. Let's not just fortify our faith in the gospel. We should. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel, friends. It's the power of God into salvation for all who believe. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel by not only not preaching it, but not singing about it, not being delighted in it. And that's my prayer for us this morning is that we would be. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you not only came to live a perfect life, but to shed your blood so that we might have a better news than that of Abel. That your blood that was shed brings the news of a new covenant, and we thank you for it, Jesus. Thank you that you've brought hope. Thank you that you've brought a future. Thank you that you offered eternal life and salvation, not just temporary security from judgment, but eternal security from ultimate judgment. And so now, my God, would you help us, help our words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart to be pleasing to you. As we take of your supper, let us be reminded that the new covenant that we have is such a better message. And let us not be ashamed of it. Give us the courage we need to preach the gospel and give us the confidence that we need to be reminded that we're sons and daughters. We love you, Lord. We trust you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.